Before we read, let us come to God in prayer. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, many of us this morning can sing those words from our own experience. I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus in Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. But Father, we thank you that the wonder of it is that it's true. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the empty tomb. And thank you for the life that is found in Jesus, your wonderful Son. We ask, Lord, that you would speak to us this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that your word is living and active. Lord, in your grace, would you speak to us by the power of your spirits. And may our lives be different after hearing your word. Above all, may Jesus' name be lifted high, for we ask this in his name. Amen. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Brothers, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written... Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, 
but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. This is the Word of God. I don't know what's been the best purchase you've ever made. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we were on holiday in America, and I thought I'd be really brave and rent a car this time. So we flew into Chicago, and we took the bus to the Hertz car rental place, and inside my car was the best purchase I have ever made. Satellite navigation. Now, its brand name was never lost, which was a good thing for us because we hadn't one single map on us. And it's amazing what satellite navigation or sat-nav can do. Listen to this. The idea is you put in the address of your destination, okay? And it will direct, direct you by speaking to you in a very sweet voice right to the very front door. And when you arrive, it will tell you, you've arrived. But if you ever go off track, do you know what happens? It rings a wee bell and it tells, and it tells you, please return to the marked route. And it really means to say, please return to the marked route. It's one of those strange Americanisms. But you know, I thought about that. Here's what it brought home to me. If you're a Christian, There are many things in your life that can take you slightly off track if you let them. Such as relationships at your work, financial pressures, and maybe just the sheer busyness of life in 2006. I read last week that in an average lifetime, the average person spends three years in business meetings, 13 years watching TV, consumes over 109,000 pounds of food, makes 1,811 trips to McDonald's, catches 304 colds, and spends 24 years sleeping. Someone once said, if I had my whole life to live over again, I don't think I'd have the strength. So here's the question we're going to think about this morning. How do you stay on track as a Christian? With all that's going on in your life, how do you stay on track? 2,000 years ago, in the spring of AD 55, a letter was written to a young church in a place called Corinth, which gives us the answer to this question. Now, the person who wrote the letter was the Apostle Paul. And Paul's purpose in this wonderful letter is to call his Christian friends back to the gospel they had first received. In effect, he says, look again at the wonders of the cross. Look again at the wonders of the cross. John Scott wrote the same thing in his superb work, The Cross of Christ. And he writes this, Only one act of pure love, unsullied by any taint of ulterior motive, has ever been performed in the history of of the world, namely the self-giving of God and Christ on the cross for undeserving sinners. That is why, if we are looking for a definition of love, we should look not in a dictionary, but at Calvary. Now before we do that, 
need to understand the context. In other words, why did Paul write this letter? Okay? And we'll find it has to do with the city of Corinth itself. So let's do the tourist thing, and let's go and explore Corinth. Firstly, note its history. Corinth had been a major city-state in the Greek province of Achaia. In 146 BC, the city was destroyed by the Romans but re-established as a Roman colony in in, 44 BC. And importantly, note also its location. It was a strategic city. It was found near an isthmus. And this meant that sailors could drag their boats across a narrow strip of land rather than sail around the dangerous southern coastline of Greece. And so it was a major multicultural centre of its day, a bit like Edinburgh. But it was also a morally bankrupt city. And the point is, this society was now beginning to affect the church. And so to this church in Corinth, and to us this morning, here is Paul's advice for keeping on track as a Christian. Very simply, look once again to Calvary. And so would you come with me this morning as we reflect on three glorious truths of the cross. Three wonders of the cross. And here's the first one. Wonder at its superior wisdom. Wonder at its superior wisdom. Verses 18 to 25. So how does Paul begin here? Verse 18. Look at what it says. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And I was reminded of this on holiday in Chicago. And whenever I go overseas, I always like to go sightseeing. Yes? And there was one site I really wanted to go and see in Chicago. Now, it wasn't the Sears Tower. And it wasn't the Chicago Art Institute. It was the University of Chicago. What could be more exciting? You're all now thinking, what a shame for Alison. But it's a hugely impressive university, it really is. And over the years, they have collected over 70 Nobel Prizes. Think about this. For all their fabulous intellect, here's what the greatest minds in the world by themselves cannot do. Know the truth about God. And that's what Paul writes. Look down at verse 20 with me. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Now this is important. Paul is not against intellectualism, okay? What Paul is against is an intellectualism or a worldview where God is not the centre. And in verse 22, keep looking down, you'll notice Paul contrasts here two examples of the way of the world or a man-centred wisdom with the way of God. And it's a totally mind-blowing contrast. Look at this. Firstly, he begins with the Jews and their demand for power. Now, if you think back to the Old Testament, okay? Think back to the Old Testament. The Jews had known God's power acting powerfully on their behalf, yes? 
And what was the most famous event of all? Anyone? It was the Exodus. When God defeated the might of the Egyptian Empire. And his people were freed from slavery. And so now what were the Jewish expectations? They wanted a miraculous sign. Not a crucified Messiah. Man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came. Ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a saviour. They didn't want that. They demanded that the promised Messiah would restore their former glory by acting powerfully on their behalf again. And so in verse 23, what does it say? The cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. And literally, the word means a scandal. It's a scandal. Now, the other group Paul mentions are the Greeks. And the Greeks were obsessed with learning. I don't know if you ever play cranium or trivial pursuits. Well, if the, the Greeks played cranium or trivial pursuits, they'd have memorized all the answers. That's what they were like. Herodotus, the Greek historian who lived in the 4th century BC, says of his people, all Greeks were zealous for every kind of learning. But get this, it was a learning without reference to the creator God. Gordon Fee describes this insatiable quest for learning. Listen to what he writes. Indeed, it was their very advances in learning that caused many to abandon the traditional gods and turn to Sophia, that is wisdom, or philosophy, or the love of wisdom. Their idolatry was to conceive of God as the ultimate reason, meaning, of course, what we deem to be reasonable. And so to the Greeks, what could be more foolish than a cross? So that's the ways of the world. Now contrast this with God's way. And let me illustrate this. It's amazing. A few years ago, we were at the Keswick Convention. And I, Keswick, I remember hearing a very moving story about some work among the street children in Brazil in a place called Bel Horizonte. There's a story about a girl called Pamela. Now, Pamela was 10 years old. She was an orphan. She did not go to school. Instead, she smoked crack cocaine and was abused on the streets. And her body was absolutely full of scabies. Why? Because she would sleep with the dogs at night time. But here's something little Pamela came to know, which those Jews and Greeks didn't know. In the cross, we find God. In the cross, we find rescue from hell. In the crucified Jesus, if you look at verse 24, we find the power of God and the wisdom of God. And that's what Pamela came to understand and trust in. On a hill, outside the city of Jerusalem, Jesus Christ shows to the full the awesome power and wisdom of Almighty God. Karl Barth was a famed theologian. And he was once asked the question, what is the greatest thought you ever had? What is the greatest thought you ever had? This brilliant intellectual said this. Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. It's amazing. I wonder if that's what you and I would say this morning. As Hebrews chapter 2 says, But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory 
and honor because he suffered death. So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. I will sing the wondrous story of the Christ who died for me. How he left the realms of glory for the cross on Calvary. How do you stay on track as a Christian? You wonder at the cross. Wonder at its superior wisdom. And now secondly, wonder at its transforming power. Verses 26 to 31. And I got a great example of this last Sunday evening, just sitting over there. As many of you will know, uh, last Sunday was a, quite a, an important day in the sporting calendar. Does anyone know why? Yeah, silly question. It was a World Cup final. And I observed last Sunday evening, sitting in the service, was a devoted football fan. Just about there. Now, he had been a Christian for just over a year. Okay? And for him to miss a World Cup final, well, that was a really big thing. And it showed to me that something major must have happened in his life. And that's what Paul is saying here. He says, take a look around and wonder at the transforming power of the cross. And verse 26, if you look down, Paul reminds us gently that we're all different. And I thought about that. And I said to myself, Richard, isn't that wonderful? Imagine if there were two Richard Gibbs. Imagine if there were two of you. What a thought. And Paul is saying this again here. That to be in Christ is to be part of a family. If you're a Christian this morning, you belong to a community. And now we come to verse 30, and it's a magnificent verse. Look at verse 30. Paul explains here the work of the cross in a person's life. And there are three words we're going to to unpack here. In Christ we have righteousness, notice holiness, and redemption. So the first word is righteousness. And the picture to think about here is the picture of an exchange. Let me illustrate this. I'm sure you'll have had the experience of being overseas. And the time comes to exchange your British pounds for a different currency. But imagine this. Imagine if one day you go up to the counter. Instead of British pounds, you hand over an old rotten newspaper instead. Okay? Just try it sometime. And you're given back gold instead. Well, in a far greater way. That's what happens when someone becomes a Christian. The Bible says this, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let me explain. When we trust in Christ, Christ, we make an exchange. Our sin for his righteousness. What happens is this. Our sin was poured into Christ at his crucifixion, And as an atoning sacrifice, Jesus turned away God's holy, perfect wrath. That's what the word propitiation means. And wonderfully, his righteousness is poured into us at our conversion. Okay? Let's think what that means. The moment I trust in Jesus for my salvation, from that moment on, God sees me as in the righteousness of Christ himself. When I am prepared to come to Calvary, dependent upon God's grace for my forgiveness, at that moment, 
He makes me right. It's wonderful. Hallelujah. What a saviour. But there's a progression. And the second word here is holiness. Holiness. Now, I don't know what comes rushing into your mind when you think of the word holiness. You all look very warm. You're waving yourselves. What a shame. Well, last week I saw an article, and it was quite amusing. Uh, it describes one of the images that we associate with holiness. Listen to this. Beards. Nothing wrong with beards. Sandals. Long robes. Stone cells. No jokes. Frequent cold baths. Wild, rocky deserts. And clean fingernails. Don't ask me why. Now, that is not what holiness is all about. Okay? You see, when you accept God's righteousness, you'll begin to form habits that lead you into the holiness of His image and into the purpose for your life. Would you turn, please, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and let's look at what verse 3 says. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 4, and verse 3. And I'm going to get some water. So look at verse 3. It says this, It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control his own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lust like the heathen, who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong his brother or take advantage of him. The Lord will punish men for all such sins, as we have already told you and warned you, for God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Dr. Alan Redpath, a former pastor of this church, put it well when he said, the evidence that you are saved is that you begin to look with the eyes of Christ. You begin to love with the heart of Christ. And you begin to think with the mind of Christ. Because the living Christ is in you. His character begins to express itself through you. So righteousness, holiness, and now thirdly, redemption. And I like the story about a boy who had built a new boat. And it illustrates well the wonder of redemption. Let me share it with you. This little boy carried his new boat to the edge of the river. And he carefully placed it in the water and slowly let out the string. Just let it go. Suddenly, a strong current caught the boat. And he ran along the shore as fast as he could. But his boat soon slipped out of sight. All afternoon he searched for it. And finally, when it was too dark to look any longer, he sadly went home. A few days later, on the way home from school, he found his boat just, found the boat just like his in a store window. When he got closer, he could see. Sure enough, it was his boat. So he hurried to the store manager and said, Sir, that's my boat in your window. I made it. The reply, Sorry, son, but someone else brought it in this morning. If you want it, you'll have to buy it for one pound. He ran home and counted all his money. Exactly one pound. When he reached the store, he rushed to the counter. Here's the money for my boat. As he left the store... He hugged his boat, and he said, No already, now you're twice mine. First I made you, and now I bought you. On the cross, Jesus secured our redemption. And one day, we'll find ourselves in his very presence, fully redeemed. As the Apostle John could write, Dear friends, 
Now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. How do you stay on track as a Christian? You wonder at the cross, wonder at its superior wisdom and its transforming power. And now finally, wonder at its victorious champion. Verses 1 to 5 of chapter 2. And if you look at verse 2, we can see that Paul, he is just captivated by his victorious Lord. Look at, look at what he writes. He writes, For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Last Thursday, I watched on television the story about David Williams, who swam the English Channel for charity. And it was an amazing achievement. And at the end, everyone was cheering. I'll picture this. Picture this scene in Revelation chapter 5, read earlier, of the glorious cheer from the balconies of heaven for our Saviour. That's what it says. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. Gregory of Nazianzus, writing 300 years after Paul's letter, writes this about Jesus our champion. And I love what he writes. He says, he began his ministry by being hungry, yet he is the bread of life. He was weary, yet he is our rest. Jesus paid tribute, yet he is the king. Jesus wept, yet he wipes away our tears. Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver, yet he redeemed the world. He was born as a lamb to the slaughter, yet he is the good shepherd. Jesus died, yet by his death he destroyed the power of death. And so as we close, here are three practical questions to ask ourselves. Okay, we're almost finished. And here's the first one. Do I know Jesus? Do I know Jesus? Now I can remember the day when I became a Christian. I was seven years old, so it wasn't that long ago. I was listening to what's the laugh for? I was listening to the Salty Songbook, a children's Christian cassette tape. Has anyone heard of Salty Songbook? Yes? A few? Now at seven years old, I didn't know anything about post-millennialism. Premillennialism or amillennialism. And I didn't have the foggiest idea about ecclesiology, anthropology, pneumatology, and eschatology. Okay? But what I did know through the reading of God's Word and through those simple children's songs was this. I needed saved, forgiven of my sin, sin. I needed Jesus in my life. And at a young age, I received Christ into my life. As our verse for the year says, Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent and at a young age, that's what happened. And from that day on, Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 became a reality for me. For I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live. But Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I wonder, do you know him this morning? I wonder if you will take that step this morning. Now, our second question is this. Do I love Jesus? Do I love Jesus? 
In other words, am I growing in my walk with Christ? Is my love for Jesus greater now than it was on the 16th of July 2005? Or have I let discouragements take me slightly off track? And do I need to refocus the priorities of my life? Last week, I read a poem, and it brought home to me once again how precious Christ is to a believer. Here's what it says. It's a wonderful poem. Face to face with Christ my Saviour. Face to face, what will it be? When, when with rapture I behold him, Jesus Christ who died for me. Only faintly now I see him, with the darkling veil between. But a blessed day is coming, when his glory shall be seen. Face to face, O blissful moment. Face to face, to see and know. Face to face, with my Redeemer, Jesus Christ, who loves me so. As the Apostle Peter could write, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. And now finally, our final question is, do I follow Jesus? Do I follow Jesus? Remember what Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So what does that mean? It means living for Jesus Even when that may sometimes be tough for you. And here's how it will show in your life. It will show in how you treat people. Your family. Those in your work. Even when they occasionally drive you up the wall. You want to have the same attitude as Christ. And you'll make time to be with them. And it will show in your work ethic. You'll put in an honest day's work. And you won't cheat on your expense account. And this is tough. It may also mean taking a stand when something is clearly morally wrong in your company. And it will show in how you spend your time. You want to be involved in the work of the church, like volunteering at the festival outreach next month. And you'll even get a free t-shirt. You see, when we focus on Jesus, we want to live for him. And so this morning, as we close... We have thought about what it means to stay on track as a Christian. It means to wonder at the cross. Wonder at its superior wisdom. Wonder at its transforming power. And wonder at its victorious champion. Let me close with these famous words from Robert Murray McShane. He wrote this as he reflected on the word on the wonder of the cross. Here's what he says. When this passing world is done, when I sunk your glaring sun, when I stand with Christ in glory, looking o'er life's finished story, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. Let us pray. We're almost finished. Now, maybe you're sitting thinking, I would love to become a Christian. I want to know God, but how do I start? Well, this morning, I'm going to read a prayer. It's from a booklet called Journey into Life, and you'll find this in the stairwells. And if you want to respond this morning, you can pray this quietly after me. And it's also on the screen. So let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, I know I have sinned 
in my thoughts, words, and actions. There are so many good things I have not done. There are so many sinful things I have done. I am sorry for my sins and turn from everything I know to be wrong. You gave your life upon the cross for me. Gratefully, I give my life back to you. Now I ask you to come into my life. Come in as my Savior to cleanse me. Come in as my Lord to control me. And I will serve you all the remaining years of my life in complete obedience. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the precious gift of eternal eternal life which is offered to each one of us. Thank you that Jesus has conquered sin and death. The tomb is empty and Jesus has triumphed. Father, we are so grateful this morning for the cross. Lord, if someone has responded this morning to you, give them the courage to tell someone about that great step they've taken. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Now we're going to sing our final hymn.